Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast. This is a screenwriting podcast where we regularly take a look at an earlier draft of a screenplay or the book that it was based on. In this episode, we will be looking at the 2011 film Moneyball, which was based on the book by Michael Lewis. If you are a returning listener, we have a slight change in the format for this episode as we have a baseball expert on to provide us with a great deal of background information. So you will be hearing from Aidan Jackson-Evans alongside myself, William Coldwell, and regular co-host Alan Vasquez. I'm talking to a few other potential guests at this time, and not only am I particularly excited to be working with them, but also to introduce you, the listener, to them, to hear their unique take on the screenplays that we're looking at that week. So I do hope to make that a regular thing. Thank you again for supporting the podcast. Please do share and recommend it to any friends that you think might be interested. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I am not William Caldwell. I am Alan Vasquez, but William is here. This week, we are going to be talking about the screenplay to Moneyball, written by Steve Zalian and Aaron Sorkin and based on the best-selling book by Michael Lewis. This week, we have a special guest in the studio to help us. Aidan Jackson-Evans is a baseball writer and researcher. He has written on advanced baseball statistics for USA Today Sports Weekly, spoken on baseball history at Colby College, and is here in San Diego presenting at the Sabre Convention. That's the Society for American Baseball Research Convention. Hi, Will, Alan. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. So, as we know, the script and the book are based on a true story, given the the knowledge that you have and being so immersed in the world of baseball. How accurate is uh, both the book and the, the script with real life? So I would say that the film is a fairly accurate representation of the book. There are some major changes to the character that Jonah Hill plays, Peter Brand, who is a, a composite character, and there is a change into um, how Billy Bean discovers this new world of advanced statistics Uh, that is portrayed differently in the movie than in the uh, in the book however i would say broadly the movie does a very good job of incorporating even the smallest aspects uh, of the book even subtly and uh, i think i think i'd say it's a faithful adaptation the two things of the the movie and the book do share common flaws however in that Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, is trying to tell a story, and he he is telling a very specific story, but he perhaps elides some other aspects of things that led to the 2002 athletics success. In both the movie and the book, players such as Barry Zito, who won the Cy Young Award, which goes to the best pitcher in the league that year, he's barely mentioned. Tim Hudson and Mark Mulder, other fantastic players uh miguel tejada won the most valuable player award in 2002 and he is not really even a character in the film and is barely mentioned in the book so so there are some underlying issues with the specific story that the book and the movie tells in terms of how accurate that is however the film is a faithful adaptation of the book if you see how i'm saying yes do you think it would have been possible for uh, a screenwriter to have corrected those those misconceptions as i said two players on these a's teams won perhaps the biggest awards you can win uh, in baseball for a season so that this isn't some hidden you know 
the research that you have to do to be able to work out what was the, the secret source that made the Oakland Days tick. And I think the reason that the film does not choose to incorporate these other characters, these other players who are contributors, is that it's a less interesting story. It does not make them seem so much like an underdog when you say that they had literally the, the best pitcher and the best hitter in the league on their team. So I, I think that is why it's trying to sell this underdog story, uh, this new way of thinking of finding undervalued talents and bringing them into your team. And um, it's just a less compelling story when you include some of these aspects. So from my perspective, the central premise of the book Moneyball is that there was a monumental shift in the understanding of how to get a competitive advantage in the game. And adapting that story for the screen placed Billy Bean at the center of events. And is that necessarily true? Was he really such a pioneer? The book was certainly influential, and Billy Bean was definitely a, a, a very, and still is, a very influential figure in baseball. As we will discover later, uh, when we talk about the narrative of the film, uh, the film presents how Billy Bean came to be this influential figure in a slightly different way to the reality that is presented in the book. But certainly, yes, he, uh, he was at the forefront of changing the way that people think about uh, statistics in baseball, changing the way that front offices operated, and yes, really pushing some of the ideas of advanced statistics and bringing that into the front office. And you wouldn't necessarily expect that from someone who ended up not going to college and starting his baseball career, his pro career at about the age of 18, and that didn't really pan out for him. You You would think he kind of would have ended up perhaps wandering aimlessly through life, but the film depicts him as making this monumental decision at a young age to go in and become a scout. But what really caused this transformation? It is seen in the film. He was accepted to Stanford. Um, he chose to go into baseball. Um, and I, you know, I think we, we see from the film that he, he kind of regrets that, that decision and not going to university. His career was, uh, was, was on the wane as a major league hitter. And he did make this decision to go into scouting. I think we see that he was always someone who um, was a little bit different, I think. And this is not really shown in the film, but he goes into scouting. The book talks about this, that this is something that people don't do. They don't just give up major league careers to be a scout. They wait until the very final moment. They, they want to play. They want to be in the bigs as, as long as possible. So certainly it was a strange decision, but he was in the, the right organization, the Oakland Athletics, uh, and he had the right general manager, Sandy Alderson, to recognize his talent. And he moved up the ranks there. And that is where he learned some of the things the Bill James, for example, was espousing about statistics. And that was kind of how he came to be the general manager of the A's with this different way of thinking. Obviously, in the film, it's shown a little bit differently. And also, again, as we'll discuss, the character of Peter Brand. Right, which was, in, which was kind of like a made-up character, but based on a real person. Brand, Jonah Hill's character, Brand, is a, is a sort of composite character right. of, of a lot of the uh, staff that worked for Bean in the Oakland Athletics. Gotcha. Cool. So I guess we can just get into it. Yeah. So let's just briefly mention some of the production history. Initially, actually, Moneyball was written by Stan Shervin, who wrote the first draft. And it was actually going to be directed by Steven Soderbergh. And it was actually only days before production that the studio did not like the direction that Steven Soderbergh was going with the film. So they canceled it. 
And I think it wasn't until about a year later that it came back into production after having gone uh, Steven Zalian and Aaron Sorkin to finish the film. So there's an earlier version of the script that's floating around, which is a Steve Zalian version. And then the third, the monumental version is the one where, which is credited as co-written by Aaron Sorkin, although he kind of overshadows uh, Steve Zalian a little bit in in the memory of the film, perhaps. Possibly because there's so much snappy dialogue all the way through. So it takes on the identity of a Sorkin film. Uh, but we'll take a, a look at how some of those scenes were changed. We won't compare every single difference. The book itself isn't really a narrative in the same sense. It It's almost like a work of investigative journalism. A similar thing happened with The Big Short, which is also a Michael Lewis film. And... It has such a wealth of content, it can only, by reading it, it can just only add to your understanding of the story of Moneyball. Yeah, so starting from the very beginning, I think there was like a, the most major change is the opening sequence of the, the script. It's, uh, they completely cut out, I think, the first sort of 10 pages or so. A lot of it that includes Tara, which is Billy's second wife, who does not appear in the film at all. And from what I read, she actually shot all her scenes, but they decided to cut them all out. That's really interesting because there are there's some scenes in the middle where there's even a conversation between Billy, Tara, and his daughter. And in the film, it's just Billy and his daughter, but the scene is more or less intact. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting how they entirely excluded her. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting decision to make anyway. Perhaps they felt like the story didn't warrant this additional inclusion of a female support yeah i think i agree actually i think the, the the film is such like it feels very focused and very sort of tight at this point like it's about baseball it's about about this man using the limited resources he has to to try to win and his relationship with his daughter and i do feel like maybe adding his relationship to his second wife might have been a little bit too much information overload that might have taken away from what the main story is i actually i think that, that that was a good thing this is definitely a male-centric movie we have the you know the, the character daughter we see uh, billy bean's ex-wife briefly in a, in a couple of scenes and you know that's that's uh unfortunately like a reality of baseball is this uh area of of the world which is very off limits to to women and that's changing to some degree in front offices around major league baseball so I, in some respects, I think it would have been nice to have another uh, female character or, or, or a couple of others. Perhaps I, I saw that Scott Hatterberg's wife has a larger role in the script as well. However, I think, as you said, Alan, this is a focused film and it's, it's, it's difficult to know where that fits. And, and, and the role of, of girlfriend of the main character or wife of the main character, perhaps that wouldn't have been a particularly juicy role anyway. No, actually... There was very little personality in the script from what I was reading from her. It was usually just to sort of add more of a nuance to Billy's character. Mm. She would sort of comment on how he is as a person to another person. So it never felt like she was getting a proper character development that always seemed in service to the main character. I also think that by removing her, it allows the bromance between him and Jonah Hill to flourish a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, sensing that he doesn't really have a partner in the world. He's just got his daughter who is living in, in another part of the country. Mm -hmm. 
and he sees her less regularly. He's divorced, so he no longer has a marriage, and you can see him more as a character who has thrown himself into his work. And we learn a lot about his motivations and state of mind simply by his discussions with his bosses, with the people who work for him, and with Pete. Just want to make one more comment on on the sort of female representation in this movie, if, if I may. There is one scene in the clubhouse where a, a reporter is questioning some of the characters later in the movie. And she is very aggressive. She is, I think that is one of the most unrealistic scenes in the movie. The aggressiveness with which she is, is questioning these players just before opening day. And I, I do think that is to the film's detriment that perhaps one of the only women characters in this movie comes across very poorly, intentionally, uh, as a person. And um, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that is unfortunate. That is very interesting. When I was watching that scene, I remember thinking, like, are they allowed to be that rude? Uh, I mean, know, especially in in the setting that she was in their personal space, yeah, that, that did not come across to me as authentic. Okay, cool. That's good. <laughs> that is very rude. I mean, there are incidents happen between uh, media and and players. Obviously, uh, sometimes that relationship is cordial. Sometimes it can be less so. As something happened recently, but right. I I feel like uh the, yeah that presentation of her as a as as a character is not something that I. I think stands out to um, a realistic portrayal of that interaction that usually happens. Another scene that's cut from the the early part of the film is Billy storming into someone else's bar mitzvah. And there's a few... I can entirely see why this scene was cut, because although it portrays him as short-tempered and very determined to get his own way, there's something that really stands out as just untrue to, to him as a character, which is that... He sees the young boy who's just become a man in the Jewish tradition and is is 13, 12 or 13 years old, and he gives him a glass of whiskey. And that just doesn't seem to ring true to someone who is the father of a 12-year-old daughter at exactly the same time, that he would probably be a bit more protective of the kids around him rather than <laughs> haphazardly handing out uh, hard liquor. Yeah, and it, it kind of, it really doesn't have that much to do with the main, I mean, it does, it kind of sets it up, but there's really no need to take that long to get the story going. So I, while reading it, I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense why this is not in the film. I didn't find it particularly that entertaining. So instead we get a highlights, real scene setting, this is baseball, we're watching archive footage, and then we're pretty much dropped into what is about the third or fourth scene in the actual written screenplay, which is where we, we get a real sense of the the real world that Billy inhabits, which is he is struggling hard to get money to get this team up to scratch. He has much less of a budget than most of the competition. And that is something I will I will say as someone that doesn't really know much about stats and, and baseball in general, that the film, the way it starts, it, it does such a good job at even the person that wouldn't know anything about that to sort of engage them into what the story is about. This guy's uphill battles that he doesn't have the money and he's trying to find a different way of, you know, trying to win something and finding the right person that might help him to do that. I mean, that in itself is a good story. You don't need to know all these sort of statistical things but it 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 also doesn't ignore it i think it's also very good at sort of combining the two i learned a thing or two about stats <laughs> is what i'm trying to say uh -huh. and it didn't bore me it didn't feel like homework i still don't know much about it but mm -hmm. 
it, it got me through the film. And I think part of the reason why it worked so well was the dialogue was very fast paced and the characters were very intriguing. And I just, uh, out of curiosity, how much do you think was sort of sacrificed in terms of like stats? Do you, would you have wanted it to explore that a little bit more or did it do about the right amount, do you think, in terms of this story? So when I said earlier that, that the film is a good adaptation of the book, I think this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Moneyball was a almost a, you know, a, a pop book right, about bringing mm. uh, this subject to non-experts. It was a sort of simple story about someone uh, finding clever and interesting ways in which to beat the competition. Uh, this could be told in, in kind of any industry or about anything. And, and if you did it well, you could tell it in an interesting way. And I think that's what Michael Lewis did with Moneyball. So the book itself is not overloaded with statistics. The central tenant of the film is essentially explained by Jonah Hill's character in, in the scene in which him and Billy Bean meet, where uh, he says that baseball general managers are looking at baseball wrong. They do not understand the value of players. You don't need to understand the specifics of all of that. You just need to know that he's got a smart new way of looking at things, mm -hmm. which involves concepts such as walking more, uh, which is an undervalued asset. But in order for this narrative to work and how it's structured in the screenplay, at least, what's happening is that Sorkin's starting out with this premise of there's a guy and he's got a problem and he needs to go out into the world and search until he finds the solution to that problem. But in reality, Billy Bean had already adapted some of this way of thinking already and was focusing on this draft or did it only really occur was there this magic moment where he meets a character like Pete who reveals the the truth to him in some way I mean as I said the way it's presented in the book is that Billy Bean is working for the, the previous general manager Sandy Alderson who himself has was did not have a baseball background he was himself also uh yeah like a non-baseball guy and he was bringing principles from other areas of uh, industry outside of sports and he also uh, read this this guy Bill James who is an incredibly influential figure in the the history of baseball uh, statistics and research so sure the book sells it as a, a moment you know the, where Billy Bean discovers the works of Bill James uh, it's, it's different to how it is in the film cool actually I did want to bring something up that they changed from the script to the film so in the script there's a different quote than the film has at the beginning. Okay, so in the script it says, there will always be people who are ahead of the curve and people who are behind the curve, but knowledge moves the curve. And this is a quote from Bill James. In the film, it's changed to, it's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. So I think I think I like the second quote because there really was this, this huge knowledge gap in how players were being evaluated and what, people like Bill James and what people like uh, Billy Bean were doing, truly trying to get to the science of it. So uh, sabermetrics, which is a term that comes from Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research, uh, that's defined by uh, Bill James as essentially the search for essential truth in baseball. Um, he's almost like a philosopher, right? He's, 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 but he's asking existentialist questions about sport. But it's very grounded in uh, things you can measure. You yeah, know, a rule-based world, yeah. 
it, it's it's all there. You know, a lot of a lot of it is on the page. Uh, you can see the specific things that a, that a player does. You can see his outcomes. But people just were not valuing the correct things. That is, it was this ocean of non knowledge, as it were. So I think I do like that second quote. I really like how in the book as well, Michael Lewis compares this to the advances that were made, as he calls them, in capitalism, in the sense that people learnt how to read the stock market in a different way in order to gain a competitive edge. And he's he's focused most of his career on writing on that side of things, as we'll see in books like The Big Short. Mm-hmm. But he he's almost suggesting that baseball was running a little behind the rest of the world in terms of once the raw com- computing power came in, the sport still didn't, didn't adapt to the existence of it until much later than they could have. And do you think that's changed? Do you think it's more about that now ever since this sort of story happened, which is uh, this happened in 2002, I believe? Yeah, well, to, to give you an idea of how much it's changed, uh, 2002, this, reading this book now uh, and, and, and watching the film, these ideas themselves, these revolutionary ideas at the time, are now completely and hopelessly outdated. Uh, there's a there's a new book out I've been reading actually by by Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sorchuk called the MVP Machine and there's a quote in there from uh, some uh, researcher in a in a in a team uh, in Major League Baseball he's not named it's an anonymous source and he says uh, I think the line is people who think their team is doing moneyball things like those guys are getting their asses kicked moneyball things was about the identification of undervalued talent. Now you have teams of of people not only trying to find talent and uh, correctly value it, but develop players in uh, to make them the most efficient and best forms of themselves that they can be. I mean, the hiring in front offices now you have to have you have to know programming languages. You probably have to have a degree from a very impressive college. Baseball teams are no longer being run for better or worse by old ball players but by Yale and Harvard graduates. It's a completely different sport uh, to what we're seeing even in the Moneyball world, uh, for better or worse. But yeah, there is a, a complete revolution in how things have changed. Wow, that's interesting that there's like a whole new world like beyond this one, which I mean makes sense that it's not just about finding the undervalued players, but to bring the best out of the players that you do have and having a way to measure that. I also like the second quote, and because it also fits with some of the themes in the film, it's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. And I think like that's just a metaphor for life as well. Part <laughs> of like the message of his daughter is that he's so wrapped up into his world that he's not really enjoying the show to steal lyrics that she mm-hmm. sings to him. You know, and I think that's sort of an underlying, it's not overdone, which is what I love about the film is that it's not trying to bang you over the head with morality, but rather that is kind of at, uh, it's in the background there as well. Yeah, I think that's the reason why Casey remains, his daughter Casey remains as a character, because it gives the childlike innocence the that perspective on the world, even though his, his second wife is taken out, that role is fulfilled by, by Pete. Uh, in the fact that they're kind of in this symbiotic relationship that they, they both need each other to s- succeed and Pete can tell him the the harsh truths when he needs to hear them mm-hmm. C- 
continuing on with the story a little bit, so we've we've set up the initial world where where uh, Billy has his his argument with the club's owner, but then he travels off to Cleveland. I'm not sure how accurate it is that general managers would fly across the country just to go and talk about maybe trading some players uh, in in the 2000s, but nonetheless, he ends up there, and that's where he has this revelation in the offices of the Cleveland Indians. He sees this guy whisper something in the ears of the general manager, and that's all he needs to know. And he go- and this is some of Sorkin's best dialogue in the whole film, is when he goes over and says, who are you? He says, I'm Pete. Okay. Uh, I'm Peter Brand. And he says, no, who, who are you? I don't care about your name. Who are you? <laughs> he wants to know, what are you? What are you even doing here? You, it, he stands out so much compared to all the, the scouts who know, uh, know a player by the way he stands and the way he holds a bat, which is a, another great way that uh, Sorkin managed to adapt the source material as he completely captures the voices of these scouts, the way they're written by Lewis, the terms they use about having, having all five, he's a good looker. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, the good face, the good chin, the good jaw, talking about his girlfriends. All these, uh, I mean, the scouting, that that whole parlance, it's the whole language unto itself. In fact, actually, this is something else that came up in the MVP machine, that, that book that I alluded to earlier. Uh, they, they talked about how uh, guy is essentially used in the same way in the scouting world as Smurf is used in the uh, Smurf world. Like, good guy, this guy is the guy, he's our guy. I mean, someone in this movie, <laughs> they, they, they talk about he's our guy, you know, and that means something. Uh, there's this whole language that they're communicating each other with. And yeah, you're right, it's, it's, it's peppered into those scenes with the scouts. Uh, you get a lot of that. Yeah, so we, uh, we meet Peter Brand, played by Jonah Hill. Except that this was a composite character, so it wasn't actually. He's based on another. Real That's person. right. I, I sort of mentioned this earlier a little bit. So he's mostly based on Paul T. Podesta, who uh, was in Cleveland prior to uh, coming to the Oakland days. That part is true. And then he uh, worked with Billy Bean in in Oakland. But we see this character Peter Brown later in the video room. We see him talking to the players. There were many, obviously many other people in real life working for the A's that we see in the book. David Forster, for example, who is now the general manager of the A's. He still works under Billy Bean, but uh, he's alluded to in the book. And um, uh, and I believe it's uh, Dan Feinstein uh, as well, who is mentioned in the book, and he's in the video room. And again, he still works for the Oakland Athletics. So, but yeah, this, uh, you don't want too many characters, I guess, in the film. So I guess that's why they decided to just centralize it within this fictional Peter Brand. It really actually helps the comedic side of it having this room full of scouts and there's there's way more scouts than you would than you would need that so we get that impression as as readers there's there's all these names it's hard to discern many any significant differences between them really they've all got exactly the same way of thinking and we can clearly see that billy is outnumbered here and he's kind of at their mercy in a way because they're the guys who normally bring him information. But when he turns up with Pete, Pete sticks out in the room. Mm. And Billy's not afraid to kind of put him on the spot and use him to disprove and fact check almost and just call out any anything he thinks that the old scouts are getting wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, there is a lot of humor in there, but never... Jonah Hill's never trying to be funny, which is not a very Jonah Hill thing. So he plays sort of 
against that in this film but nonetheless he does have some funny moments and also the the one of the scouts that does stick out is sort of the head scout i believe yeah grady fuson yeah uh yeah so he he actually has a couple scenes where uh very aggressive scenes where he's very much against what billy is doing and we never see him again and we never cut back to him but it feels good that not a film is trying to single out a villain you know how sometimes films do that like the guy that didn't believe in you and like at the very end he's like surprised that it went through i'm just glad that that they didn't bring him back because that would have been such a cliche i think the scouts in many instances have a point and the 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 approach from from as we see it in the film from bean it is very abrupt you see he's he's not quite sure before he meets pete he knows that something's wrong, but he doesn't. He hasn't actually quite articulated it yet. Mm-hmm. And the way in which he goes about it is not always the best way as well. We'll see later on with his dealings with the manager, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. He does not do a good job of communicating with his manager. So sometimes what the scouts are saying is, uh, you know, they they have a point in in with with some in some respects. Mm. Grady Fuson says that we're going to scout players, we're going to develop them, and teach them the Oakland A way of baseball. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And in reality, the Oakland Days had some very good players on their teams that they had signed and, and, and developed. Yeah, I think I think in terms of narrative structure, how this works, there's almost a risk at the beginning of Moneyball that the story is over before it even starts. There's almost a risk that Billy's found his guy and he's going to turn the team around. And that's not a film. That's not going to keep audiences in the cinema. It's not going to have anyone on the edge of their seats. What needs to happen is this this new team he's assembled needs to be a complete shambles. It needs to be falling apart. It needs to not be getting the results so that the situation becomes more and more complicated for the main character. However, this is is based on an, an individual season that really occurred. And so was this all down to learning pains at the beginning of the season? Or was there was there such a conflict between the general manager and Art, the, the manager who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman? Okay, I'm going to give a very, uh, very boring answer to this question. Uh, the, the principles, in general, what we see them do in the film, you know, reevaluate players, look for undervalued assets. Uh, these are all solid ways in which to build a team one season worth of data or one half a season worth of data it's almost like that's not the right way to evaluate it's it's a process over a results kind of thing Uh, johnny hill's character actually uses the very small sample size i think at some point in the movie when he says it's too early to assess how this project is working and Mm -hmm. that is that is that is a that is true uh the 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 point is that you know they are implementing a new strategy they are kind of doing it on the fly uh in in the film at least Yes, they're, they're about to be uh, growing pains. And we see some of the mistakes that they make. Yeah, and just going back to what you were saying, of course things have to go wrong. I think uh, I think it's, you know, one of Aaron Sorkin's rules that he's talked about in certain, you know, a lot of interviews is, you know, you got to have a character that really wants something and things that are in his way. And that and that's your fundamental, like, screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Overall, you got to have obstacles. And I think for him, it's convincing the right people that this is going to work actually getting it to work with the players and so we definitely see that whole journey um play out in the film these obstacles are real as well you know trying to convince get get players on board uh convince the scouts uh trying to squeeze more money out of the the general manager these are all the the actual problems of those those teams 
One of the things I like is just how the story is designed to take power away from him as well, in the sense that he creates the team and then the manager starts selecting the players in ways that he knows will infuriate Billy. In Art's defense, he's saying he's trying to play the team as well as he can because his contract's going to be up. And so he wants the next guy who's about to hire him to hire him. He doesn't want to be associated with this baseball sabermetric stuff. He wants to be considered an old-time ball player. And that I, I just love how Philip Seymour Hoffman played this role, the way he stands with his hands on his on his hips, and he, he just has that exact stance of a coach. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, again, he's not a villain in this piece. He no. is trying to uh, protect his role, and you stand out when you when you take risks you stand out and if it if it fails then you're at risk of not getting another job it's almost better uh we see this in baseball time and time again it's better to lose conventionally than to lose in a manner that might get you laughed at the the oh he's doing something different and he lost therefore this thing is bad we'll get to this again at the end of the movie but there's a there's a voiceover where someone is the A's, well, maybe I shouldn't spoil the ending quite yet, uh, but when we see what happens at the end of the season, there's a voiceover of a guy saying, this, that stuff just doesn't work. Um, right. So you can totally see Philip Zimmer Hoffman, Art Howe's point of view. And I do believe, uh, I, I read some stuff, and he, the real-life art actually was not very happy with his portrayal in the film. Uh, and I think it was someone else, I think, that, uh, I think it was Haddenberg? Oh, really? I think he said also that it wasn't a very accurate portrayal of art, but it was accurate in the conflict between art and Billy, but not in like personality and his temperament. Yeah, at a certain point, in order to simplify things, there's a risk of misrepresenting because yeah. I think art is going to see that he had this season where with the budget that they had and the players they had, and any conflicts that might have occurred with Billy, but they still got their 102 wins and and made it into the playoffs. So you can't say the coach had no role of any kind. Yeah, I mean, who knows what exactly happens? I mean, it's, Art it's, could be lying too. Like, it, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, it is. It's one of the most difficult things to evaluate managers yeah. in baseball. It's uh, it's it's incredibly difficult. Um, and yeah, um, I, as I said, like I completely see uh, the character of the character of art house point of view in in this movie that's interesting that's cool though i think the film is trying to not have the audience have that perspective mm. you know i mean as someone that doesn't really know much about baseball i did see i didn't see philip seymour hoffman's character art as a villain per se i just saw him as someone that was too old school and not wanting to take risks or trying to change or trying to adapt to something that might help them his interests um, are not necessarily aligned with Billy's. Right, exactly. And uh, I mean, in the beginning, you do get a sense of like, hmm, is this going to be the like the bad guy or like the really strong opposing force? But that doesn't end up happening either, which I was very happy about. I suppose it's a risk of Sorkin's approach, as you mentioned, uh, this firm belief in putting obstacles in a character's way will oftentimes lend itself to criticism if you're portraying real people. And the similar criticism certainly came up about The Social Network mm. and Steve Jobs as well, which is a film we have already looked at the screenplay for. And I think we covered this a little bit about mm. how certain characters felt 
that their portrayal was a bit unfair in that film as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it's just part of, you know, what a, a good story is, which is, you know, every obstacle is there to sort of give the character the opportunity to be shaped. We get to learn a lot about Billy in the way he handles all these different obstacles. And I think there's a there's this huge amount of anger within him. I think he's the, the angriest one there. He's constantly like throwing chairs or throwing fits. But I think that part of what makes it interesting are these flashbacks to when he was younger. And we see where that frustration is stemming from. And I don't think they overdo these flashbacks where first got drafted and didn't go to school. They're there kind of sprinkled throughout the film, but they're never sort of like in-depth. We go and get like five scenes. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of warranted where this frustration was coming from. That again, I, I feel that it was a very good adaptation from the material that Michael Lewis was presenting because an early chapter of the book is dedicated to Billy's career and the things that come up are unfulfilled dreams, being told by scouts that he had potential that didn't pan out in the end, having to give up going to college, but also the anger issues. Well, the, there's evidence of him at high school that everyone was terrified of being around him if he struck out. He would go and smash, he would smash metal bats so that they bent. And then it, uh, Lewis re recounts an anecdote about Billy then stepping up to bat again with the bent metal bat. But he was just steaming. He was just angry. And it's nice to see that scattered throughout the film. The flashbacks are very good in, in giving us as an audience that background info on him and on his first draft pick, which was for a really tiny sum of money as well, which I think might have led to maybe a bit of resentment there because suddenly after this point in in time the wages for baseball players skyrocket well i mean you see a man that's just really trying to win something and you know he didn't get his opportunity when he was younger and i think i mean i just i guess from a psychological perspective i feel like that need and that's just driving him and it's driving him in this particular story as well part of uh one of the ongoing sort of repeated dialogue is it's hard not to be romantic about baseball. And I always found that very ironic because they're constantly dealing with numbers, <laughs> which in my opinion is not very romantic. But I can definitely see the sort of paradox in that. So how have I explained this before to, to other people is that, you know, baseball and, and, and sports in general, they're, they're just stories with uh, sporting activities interspersed in between them. We wouldn't enjoy, I think, we wouldn't follow with such fervor the baseball season were it not for these little stories sprinkled within it sure there's statistics and numbers and that's way to that's one way to enjoy it uh what happens in sport is that we we ask the players to take on the role of the hero for us for a moment so you have the batter step up and they get this one shot it's, it's going to come around again and again over the course of a game and then the course of a season but in that moment it's the one shot to turn everything around, to do something remarkable. Most of the time they're going to strike out or they're going to walk or something like that. And then there's these moments that seem to be when everything is right, just it seems like magic is happening to the crowd. The statistical side is this whole other story about it where you start to sense that there are heroes there who weren't seen because you didn't see it as this moment of magic. 
And that's where this difference between Pete and the scouts are really coming in. Pete is seeing his heroes. There's a great scene of him sitting in this this dark video room saying, that's that's my guy. That's the guy I dream about getting one day because he's he's got the most walks. And, <laughs> you know, like no other fan, no, definitely none of the scouts are going to talk like that. The scouts want to see, has he got the body? Has he got the goods? Is he is he our guy? I can definitely see what you were saying about, you know, there's all these mini stories sprinkled throughout. So you have this kind of like an entire saga mm-hmm. for a season and you have all these like different chapters and different episodes. And there's obviously like the, the finale of sorts and you get to see this entire journey which I get now, it all just kind of clicked for a second. Cause I'm, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, you're right. Like, you know, it, it means that much more when you're actually seeing someone up there to bat and you know a little bit about them. It kind of adds more of a, kind of pulls you in a little bit more. You're a bit more engaged in how it's all going to sort of play out. So with any world you decide to enter, there's, you know, if you're invested in like the little stories, it just makes that whole journey that much more impactful. And there's just something there's just something about competitive sports in the sense that, for example, the A's are in a division. At this time, was it four teams in in their division? There were four five? teams in the yeah, American League West at the time. There's now five. But. So at this time, the A's were in a division of four teams. Mm. So there's always going to be a fourth place team. There's always going to be a third place team. There's always going to be people who are, are losing for every winner. Yeah. And there's just something... Once you've identified your hero, though, you want to see them win. So Billy is our our hero in this story. He's the guy we want to see win, and the odds are completely against him. And throughout the narrative, they the odds get worse and worse and worse as because as the A's start to head towards higher quality play, if they're going to end up in the playoffs, there's a sense that will these stats really be the magic solution mm. or? And it's it's kind of difficult because this the story is almost ambiguous about it in a way. There's still a sense that there's still money lacking. There's still the Yankees and the Red Sox are still powerhouses that maybe can't be competed against at all. But that's kind of why we start to root for him. We we start to support him because he's the one we want to see win. But the, the aim is pretty straightforward. And that's yeah. why sports movies work, I think. It's just a very simple aim. You want to see your guy win. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing now thinking about it. Like the odds are, the odds were against him, but technically they weren't. It's just more about seeing if the odds were truly, if his odds were truly the odds that he thought. You know what I mean? Like it's an underdog story. I think that's what we're getting. Yes, it's a classic. It's a classic underdog story. You know, the very first shot of the movie, pretty much, is the the title with the the dollar values of the the payroll of the Yankees and the payroll of the A's. So yes. you see this from the beginning like we like these guys are the poor guys how are That's they gonna great. win it's yeah. an underdog story but if it was a fictional underdog story you could have them win and so there's this is an interesting sports movie in that it's it's slightly ambiguous as to because of the reality billy needs to be encouraged by the people that he kind of did win even if he didn't get the trophy to show it let's say Right. So it is an underdog story, but at the same time, it's kind of like in the spirit of Rocky, which is he loses, but he wins type of paradox. They don't win all the way, but nonetheless, the amount of games they won and how they changed the game. Yes. And, and this is more or less what 
what Peter Brand says in the movie, right? Like, Billy, you won, you know? And, right. and, and, and as I said, the, the complete revolution in how teams think about baseball in the 21st century, yes, the, it, <laughs> this uh, this was uh, incredibly influential. And just, just to, to, to make a point about a, a direct, clear influence you can draw from this book to uh, modern-day baseball uh, front offices, um, you know, you have guys who, like, let's take uh, Farhan Zaidi, for example. He is the current uh, president of baseball operations of the San Francisco Giants. He's essentially in charge of everything. Uh, he read Moneyball, sent off his CV to all the guys who were mentioned in this book, and he got a job with the Oakland A's. And he worked there for about 10 years, became assistant general manager, then became general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and is now working at the Giants. So this is a guy that read this book and then... Basically, now he's one of the decision makers, the key decision makers in Major League Baseball. So, yeah, Billy Bean, uh, in a way, did win. And it's interesting how that's almost like a second wave to what Moneyball talks about, which is that there was this initial wave of fanatics who were waiting for Bill James's latest book to come out. And so all of the references to Bill James throughout the film of Moneyball are kind of alluding to that, that there's this spiritual origin to this way of thinking and that's probably why aaron sorkin initially chose a bill james quote to to open the film which was later changed yeah when he has to start trading players i think that's where the film starts getting complicated because then you have that whole sort of you know very human aspect of having to fire someone and that's never that's never a pleasant thing. And it kind of does it in a humorous way, too, the way he tries to involve Jonah Hill, uh, Peter Brandt, to kind of like do it for him. I think it, what Sorkin identified there is we know how to make Billy Bean uncomfortable. We, we can challenge his way of thinking. We can tell him he's not getting the money he needs, all that kind of stuff. But how do you make Jonah uncomfortable? How, how do you make Pete uncomfortable? He's a, in, extremely intelligent but he he doesn't want to be the center of attention. So I think that's what Sorkin identified as, well, how do you force this character into a situation he doesn't want to be in? Make him fire someone. Make him look someone in the eye and tell them that their, their career ha at that place has ended and they're going somewhere else. So I, really, I think he really identified, like, how do you, how do you find conflict for all of your characters? It, it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the results or the game. It's more about, as a personal interaction, what will make this person uncomfortable. And I just want to be clear, they're not being fired so much. They're being traded to, to other teams. They still have a job at a different organization. It's obviously still something that's very uncomfortable to do. But I think that scene with where he lets Carlos Pena know that he's been traded, it's uh, it's funny because we see how Billy Bean tells him earlier in the movie, hey, just, just tell him. Here you are, here's your packet, and there you go. It's it's very uh, inhumane in a way. There's this complete, uh, there's no feel, uh, there's no connection with the player. But we see how when Carlos Pena reacts to this, he basically just goes, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that really shows this, this character growth, which maybe most writers wouldn't even notice. Is there room for character growth for for the character of Pete? It's the fact that he, he learned something from Billy. He learned how to be that guy. And that uh, the actual draft script alludes a lot more to Pete becoming the general manager of the A's towards the end. That's, that's actually dropped from the film. But that was the original intention, is that there will be 
Sorkin wrote a few pages of dialogue where they talk about the fact that Peter's basically going to become the general manager unless Billy turns down the offer from the Red Sox. Yeah, so, um, you know, bringing challenges to even the supporting characters, that that is kind of what pushes the film in the middle part, as well as his relationship with his daughter, which thankfully never gets super complicated. A storyline like that can kind of take over and it becomes about, I don't know, melodrama, I guess. But I feel like she was just kind of his rock. You know, she was just sort of there as his, almost like his anchor. And there was never any sort of friction between them. It was more about like her kind of giving him a a reality check from time to time. I think she becomes his inspiration in a way, his reason to keep going and also a reason to, to chase his fears. There's always a lot of talk about how difficult the second act is. I'd say the first act really ends with him firing Grady and there being a clear division between the old way of thinking and that no longer being able to fly. Then they're running into the trouble of getting results, but to really get the second act underway is when things start turning around for the team. And you get to see a bit more of how the players interact with, with Billy that they start getting their results um, and then obviously exploring a bit more of, of the characters' backgrounds, things like that. So what gives the story its momentum in that second act is that we start to see the team win, which mm-hmm. even though we know they're now just only starting that climb back up the mountain because they've lost so many games, it at least starts to inspire us that there's something to look forward to in this film. Uh, yeah, just to talk about the production side of the film, uh, I think the editing and the score and the acting really is what drives the the momentum. I think, you know, Aaron Sorkin has like really snappy dialogue and he's got a way of really making these scenes not only convey information about what's going on with the characters and what's going on with the story, but also has a lot of entertaining Uh, way of doing it you know you see that with social network and steve jobs and all these films where he doesn't really try to get into sort of melodrama or the biopic type vibes it's more about like let's just make this scene really fun but also obviously move the story forward and and convey the the information that needs to be conveyed to the audience and like i mentioned before not knowing much about the subject or knowing much about the story i was still able to follow everything based on the energy of the film and a lot of that, I think, also has to do with the editing. The way it was edited was was very well done. I wanted to talk about baseball films because before this, I saw like the top 10 films and I was just looking at other people's like favorite films. Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is on there, yeah. Uh, and I was just curious as to what your top five baseball ha, films are. Top five baseball films. I did not grow up uh, watching baseball movies. I, uh, as you may have heard from my accent i'm from uh, i'm from the uk originally so baseball was a, a something i enjoyed from afar and baseball movies aren't just on the telly in the uk that's not really a thing so i've i've had some catching up to do uh in that regard um so i've probably not seen as many as, as you might think mm, gotcha. actually, actually on the uh, on the plane over here though uh i saw uh i watched major league which is uh, a classic and uh, i i thoroughly enjoyed it uh i do enjoy field of dreams it's it's saccharine it's it's sentimental i cry every single time (laughs) um and you know moneyball is a solid movie i don't love it 
I, I have to say, I, I, I like it and I appreciate it. And I think it's it's sneakily funny. It, it has got a lot of moments uh, throughout it that um, they kind of catch you off guard a little bit. I think, you know, Chris Pratt's character, uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy oh, yeah. it. We yeah. haven't talked about him much. But yeah, the Moneyball might be top five based on me having only watched uh, five or six uh, uh, <laughs> baseball enough. movies, I have to say. Yeah. I, mean, I, I do think it's slightly flawed, this film, and I'm not sure if it's because it tried to stick to historical events too much and could have been the inspiration for a fictional film that might have been slightly better, or if it's because it's not accurate enough and that has its own issues to do with it. I'm, I'm not sure, but something just doesn't feel necessarily right. Maybe there's just this shift of tone between the scenes with Billy and his daughter not having as much importance as maybe they were intended to. But then again, when you look at the original, well, not the original script, but the, the script that was used for shooting, you see there are so many more scenes about Billy's home life. And when they're all stripped away, Sometimes it makes the, mm. the the scenes that actually are left a little bit more stale. Also as well, I think, you know, what is this movie? The the heart of this movie and this story is, uh, okay, it's an underdog story, as we said. But uh, you've got Peter Brand, an uh, economics graduate from Yale, trying to find ways to screw ball players out of money he says at one point this guy should be worth i think it's you know seven million but we can get him for two hundred and forty thousand dollars and you know i think the questions we should be asking as viewers are like well hang on a minute shouldn't we pay that guy the money that he deserves that he uh you know it's it's it's, it's all very well to, to try to get players on the cheap but i think shouldn't the players be the heroes of the stories and, th and that's very interesting because it relates to uh billy's offer at the end of the film where Pete basically encourages him and says, if you're offered that much money, it's because you're worth it. And that seems to almost contradict exactly what he said about the players in the, the scene you mentioned. And just another thing, while I'm here railing against uh, baseball as an institution, we talk about how Carlos Peña accepts his trades with sort of stoicism, but you know that, that is not necessarily say, saying something positive about baseball, that a guy can just be moved from one place of work to another and have just no say in it and have to just be able to accept it so i'll get off my soapbox now no that was a i completely agree with that and that's something that i've thought about not just in baseball but sports in general it just feels a lot like a business and then you know when you see all these hardcore fans and they're rooting for their favorite team it's like well who are you really rooting for Right, we see the scene with the owner, who is a real estate developer. Right? You know, I believe, and 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 previously, the, you know what, the Oakland A's haven't won a, a World Series since the uh, since the late eighties, and that was back when they were being bankrolled by someone who actually wanted to see the team win a little bit more. You know, who actually put his money where his mouth was. As we see in Moneyball, uh, there's a stricter budget, and they don't end up winning the World Series. So uh, these, these are sports teams, but they're, when they're being run by bit like businesses, you're not going to see that same kind of investment. And uh... that, That's one of the points of humor that is brought up in the script as well, is the fact that they have to pay for soda and the players are all frustrated about this fact that they have to pay a dollar. And um, they challenge Pete on this mm -hmm. and and ask, why, why, why do we have to pay? And he's like... Well, you see it out on the field. Well, I don't really see it out on the field. Well, how how do you measure 
the the cutbacks, the the poor facilities they've got, all of the infrastructure, the players are left wondering what exactly is going on here because that's the thing. It could be an underdog story as the way we're portraying it is someone comes up with this brilliant way to have the most effective team for the minimum amount of money. But then again, it's also still asking these players to be performing for the minimum amount of money, which is fine for the players who wouldn't necessarily have ever been picked. Chris Pratt's character. However, there are also some genuine stars on the A's team who are then kind of being squeezed out because Billy's alternative is essentially if you want more money, you can go somewhere else. Yeah, and I think now thinking about it, I think maybe part of the reason why it doesn't feel quite like it soars as a film, at least emotionally, is because we don't really get to enjoy the victory with the players as much as you were kind of mentioning earlier. Like, it does. It, you're right, it doesn't make the players the star of the film at all. It's it's about Billy, it's about, um, it's about Peter Brandt, it's about this whole, you know, how they're trying to break the system in, in, in a way that's not a very romanticizing story. And I feel the parts of the film that really elevate, that feel really powerful are when they're winning. And you get to see how all these characters who are used to not winning and how they react to that. But they're very brief. We don't really get mm-hmm. to enjoy that, which I feel is part of what baseball is all about. There's a brief scene uh, with Chad Bradford, who's the pitcher with the funky delivery, and mm-hmm. he has a very small role in, in the film. We see him with uh, an interaction once where he, he thanks Billy for giving him this opportunity, and he says he's praying mm-hmm. for him and his family. In the book, uh, there's a whole chapter on Bradford. We see much more of his story and how that is this kind of inspirational uh, tale somewhat. Uh, and then, in, as you say, in the movie, that that's kind of relegated. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would say, just as a contrasting opinion to your point, is that they do focus a lot on that uh, 20th win that set the record and Hatterberg's home run, which is mm-hmm. the triumphant moment of the film. But that seems to be then swept out from under our feet because it's not the triumphant moment. It's, it is and it isn't. And it, it, it lives in this ambiguous, close to the ending, but not exactly the ending point which is kind of what I was trying to figure out as as I was speaking before about is this a film that doesn't quite find the right tone because it's it sometimes gets caught up in this ambiguity, which is a little strange considering how clearly thought about and well-defined and well-written all of the characters actually are in terms of their limited, no matter how limited their roles might be, Characters have clear identities, and you can easily remember the faces of the actors and how they deliver their lines and the moments that make you laugh. So it's 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 an interesting kind of point, just in terms of how how much can you change? We saw with Steve Jobs that Sorkin basically invented everything and set it in these three scenarios, and you wonder, well, maybe maybe this idea could have been liberated a little more from trying to fit it into the season that didn't necessarily have the the uplifting ending. Yeah, I feel like almost like the parts are greater than the sum of its parts. Like the parts are, uh, yeah, at the end, it's almost like it's trying to not, it's kind of almost got this conflicting set of themes. So you have like, you know, the underdog story, but it's also conflicting with the theme that's with his daughter, which is like, take it easy, like, you know, 
you know, enjoy the show, you're doing too much, but then that's almost at odds with the underdog story, like what he was trying to do. So maybe that's kind of what happened underneath. There was this sort of canceling out because it does feel a little bit cold towards the end there. But I think, uh, I think it's a very well executed story. I think it's a great sort of insight into, you know, that particular story and these characters and I, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think that it's Aaron Sorkin's best, but it wasn't just Aaron Sorkin. You know, he had a, a script that came before him that he was working with along with uh, Steven that he was doing this work. But uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. One thing I would like to talk about is Billy's last stand, almost where he, he tries to game the system and he's phoning all these different coaches on deadline day, trying oh, to and and consulting with Pete covering the phone to ask who is this person good or tell me tell me the name of someone quickly and peter's completely lost and wondering what's going on uh that it as everyone's laughing you know we can tell it's a great comedic moment of the story but it's it also raises the stakes because it 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 gives us a sense that if he doesn't this is his last shot he needs mm -hmm. to do something to turn this team around and quickly um should we ruin this by asking how accurate that is to Aiden? Or <laughs> this scene is, I would say, one of the centerpiece scenes of the book. Uh, Michael Lewis actually had very limited access to the A's um, during the writing of this book. In fact, as he mentions in uh, the epilogue, this book wasn't necessarily going to be about solely the athletics. It was going to be about how the kind of thinking, the kind of Bill Jamesian thinking that uh, infiltrated baseball. Uh, how teams were using that and how they were using this new way of thinking. It was only when he started to spend more time with Billy Bean and in the A's organization, he realized that this was the story. But he's actually only uh, there for, I think, a few days of sort of special access. And this trade deadline scene is one of them. Uh, and it's it's a pretty funny scene in the book as well. In fact, there's a whole nother level. You mentioned earlier of uh, Jonah Hill in the video room watching a player. It's Kevin Euclid saying he, he wants this guy. This is White Whale. He wants to get him. He walks a bunch. Uh, interspersed in this trade scene in the book is, in fact, an attempt to get Kevin Euclid from the Red Sox. Uh, it fails, but it it adds. I mean, this this scene in the movie is already so chaotic with calling Steve and then getting a call from another Steve and confusing names, Michaelson, Anderson, whatever. I don't even know this guy. Just trying, you know, he's he's a uh, he's like a used car salesman in that scene, and I agree, it's very funny. Getting back on my soapbox for five minutes. It's a very callous way of, you know, they're just interchanging names, trying to get one guy from one organization to the other without really kind of any thinking about the impact on these guys' lives and. And we see the end result of this is him getting Rincon coming over from the Cleveland clubhouse and Billy Bean interacting with him. And this sort of, oh, oh, hola, kind of stumbling Spanish. You know, there's not a lot of care going into these decisions on a human level. Yeah, and actually that scene is longer in the written form. And we get to hear a bit more about Rincon and, and his <laughs> bemusement to ending up at, at the A's. Yeah, it, it's something to, to look for in, in the written version. Yeah, um, it's really funny how Billy tries to, you know, kind of speak some Spanish, the limited Spanish that he he has. He Instead of saying minutos, he says menudos, stuff like that. Uh, but, I mean, reading it, though, reading that particular scene where he's trying to get these players, it gets a little confusing. Uh -huh. Reading it, watching it, I, I 
totally got it. But reading it, you're getting put all these names, and without the actress' performances, I had to like reread that scene. Like, uh-huh. what exactly is going on, and who does he have on the phone, and what you know. Uh-huh. So this is where one of the parts where like the visual medium kind of like helps out that particular particular part of the story. That's something we saw with First Man as well. Is the extent to which um, dialogue can just be used for immersement. Uh, although I feel that there is a, a careful line that can be trod between using these names just to immerse us, just to make us, it almost makes us feel as lost as Pete in a way, mm. because it, we're just being overwhelmed with names that we're not necessarily following. And so it works that way, but we also get the comedic angle. We we understand why this dialogue is going on. So I, I think it works really well. And as Ada mentioned, it's based on a, a real event, this this particular scene. So that's a great use of the, the source material to clearly bring it through. One more thing I want to talk about is most of the scenes that were cut between Billy and his first wife, Sharon. Mm. This tends to come up towards the end as well, but there are flashbacks to them trying to figure out what Billy should do with his career in the middle of the film. And it's suggested he should go into real estate. And then that kind of comes back up at the end as well. And I think maybe that might have added a bit more to the triumph. The fact that he had he had chosen a path and stuck to it. And perhaps what we, we end up with is somehow just changed kind of without much influence until he met Pete maybe falls a little bit flat in in that sense i think the scenes with his second uh, his former wife sharon i think they would have had to bring them all back because you couldn't just introduce her at the very end so like oh yeah by the way this is his uh, ex-wife and you know i think it would have to be a package deal and who knows maybe maybe that could have made the the film a little bit more impactful because it would have centered around his own personal journey as well which we like i said it was just sort of sprinkled in there i mean i feel like he was always a smart character but he finally had like his break in like because he was con- obviously he was thinking outside the box i don't think he would have been attracted to talking to peter brand if he didn't have that sort of drive that i feel like that was just sort of the the catalyst one more thing that's quite iconic about billy and it's it set up right from the beginning uh, i love the first scene that we we get in the written version In silence, we regard the 60,000 empty seats that wrap around the playing field, but then see that, in fact, it's 59,999 empty seats. There's a lone figure seated in one of them. Billy has this portrayal as being kind of a loner, kind of not at ease in in the ballpark. And I think this is a, a question for Aiden, but... Did he really dislike going to the games? What, it, throughout the story, he mentions that he doesn't want to get too close to the players because it would ruin his objectivity. But in reality, we see he actually really gets along with them and that starts to shift midway through when he starts to get more confident in how the, the tactics are working. But did he really avoid going and watching games in person? Did he avoid associating with his players as well? There's a there's a yes and there's a no in there. Uh Yes, he didn't like to watch the games. Uh, it's it's mentioned in the book. Uh, this is a it's a, ro- a recurring theme in the movie, and it's a recurring theme in the book of him avoiding, uh, you know, watching it on TV or listening to the radio. He had a 
uh, I don't know what it was actually. I don't actually understand what this technology was, but it's some sort of small white device, which like, couldn't have been a smartphone because it was 2002, but he essentially got scores. Maybe it was a pager. <laughs> um, he got scores. Uh, he got a live kind of satellite feed of the scores as they were they were rolling in. But no, he he didn't watch the game. Um, and this is there's a mixed message in the movie about how much time he spends around the players because we do see him in the clubhouse. We do see him interacting with the players a lot. But then we have that line from David Justice saying, "Why doesn't your manager interact with us and the team? Is it because he wants it makes it easier for him to cut us?" which Billy Bean says in the movie. Uh, but that's at odds with how much time he actually spends around him. In fact, he has that one-to-one conversation with David Justice later. And in the book, the real Justice says, he says that he saw Billy Bean more times in the first half of the 2002 season than he did any of his general managers combined in his entire career. And remember, this is the veteran character. This guy mm. has, has been playing in the bigs for well over a decade. And uh, and yet Bean is is... Is interacting with the players way more than anyone else he's ever seen. So it sounds like he was fairly involved then, if he saw them often. So mm. maybe that could have been just a part of uh, the narrative choice. I think so. I think it's to it's to set up the the scene where Jonah Hill goes on the road with the team. And one of the most comedic pieces of dialogue is when Billy confronts Pete and asks him, "Would you have signed me?" Mm. Which it's just fantastically done because Pete, again, it's putting him in a situation he doesn't want to be in. He he doesn't want to be intimidated by this. Billy Bean is played by Brad Pitt in this film. In real life, he was six foot four, I believe. He's he's a big, imposing figure. Yeah, yeah the reason that uh, teams loved him, the reason that he was signed... Uh... I think in the second round uh, was because he was this athlete. You know, he was uh, they, the scouts loved him. All those words they were using in the start of the movie to talk about him, the you know five tool player, right? He's got it all. They just they projected great things for him. This is actually what I don't buy that scene where Peter Brand says, "I wouldn't have signed you in the second round. I would have signed you in this round and given you this signing bonus." Because he's he's basing it on the statistics and. Billy Bean's problem, as told in the book and in this movie, was that he had a had an issue psychologically or mentally. He couldn't deal with failure. All those strikeouts that we see in the montage, him smashing the bats, that ultimately seems to be the, the way that is, that story is told. That was the issue with him. It wasn't the statistics on the page. It wasn't him as an athlete. So I, find, I, I understand why they have Peter Brown going, I wouldn't have signed you because it shows that he doesn't really care about what Billy thinks about him necessarily. He he cares about the his process, his statistics, his numbers. But I don't know that tallies with what we see. I, I do remember Michael Lewis mentioning in the book as well that there was a point that Billy was taken to some sort of training and was able to just hit with no... Because mm, there was no pressure, the- there wasn't actually a game going on. And I think they were trying out someone else at the time. And so... He was just batting and just, just for fun, and then the power came back. So that it's like Aiden said that the psychological pressure seemed to have got to him, but it can't necessarily get to you if you have this long-term game like managing, where where you get to pick and you can you can even avoid the watching the results, you can avoid being in the ballpark, but just planning and coming up with a strategy seems to have fit him. 
as a better role in life almost but we see he still has the the violent outbursts oh yeah i mean in in the again in in the book he mentioned bean mentions in the afterword um that he he thought he was portrayed he was i don't know he was like am i crazy am i a, a psychopath like he he didn't i don't know that he thought it was unfair of michael lewis necessarily but he he thought he came across as a monster in the book uh and i think in the film as well it's like it's entertaining when we have the quick cut to just a chair being flown out of uh bean's office um but yeah like kind of comes across as a little bit on edge and, and yeah i mean i feel like maybe i don't know maybe it was a wake-up call for him and maybe now after reading the book and watching the <laughs> film he's leading a much more peaceful life well he's still um, uh he's still in charge of the oakland athletics i was almost expecting you to say it was like elton john uh, that he cried after watching Rocket Man. I thought you were going to say <laughs> Billy Bean loved it so much he just started crying because of his portrayal by Brad Pitt. But <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was uh, when I because I I only saw this when it came out, you know, years ago. I haven't seen it since until now. And now I was like, oh yeah, right, Brad Pitt's in this film and he's playing this real life character. And I'm just like, how accurate is it that this guy kind of looks like Brad Pitt? Probably very little, but actually. Um, Billy was actually really good looking, really tall. And so it bothered me that much after I looked him up. Mm -hmm. So as we've discussed, the end of the film follows on from the Oakland days being eliminated from the playoffs, which already has kind of put the story on this downward turn slightly. But Billy is invited to go to Boston to talk to John Henry, yeah, the owner of the Red Sox. And um, is is made an offer where the the actual amount is revealed at the end, but in true Hollywood style, it's all passed around on pieces of paper that that you have to read and go, oh wow, <laughs> that's so much money. And that number was twelve point five million. Oh, yeah. that's uh, slightly more than the piece of paper you guys pushed over to me to come on this podcast. Just a little bit. Okay, that's about twelve point five million more. I think. <laughs> Uh, but it, it does lead to a nice conclusion in having that scene with Billy and Pete have that final heart-to-heart mm-hmm. and talk about, did he really win? Uh, maybe we should just have a few yeah. words on that last scene. It's also much longer in the script, I think, uh, and the way they shorten it just kind of cut to the chase. And I love the the moment that, you know, that I think you alluded to earlier was when he was showing him the, the footage of that one player who didn't realize he hit the home run. It was pretty much telling him, like, you know, you you did win. Because at the end, just like with Billy, I think the audience is feeling like, you know, well, they, that didn't really work. In the end, they, they, they lost. And I think that that metaphor worked really well. I kind of wish they would have sort of pushed in on that a little bit more. But I, I think it kind of was accurate to what the relationship was between the two characters and that final scene with, with jeremy brown the the large catcher who uh, who hits the home run i i would say that is one of the most enduring i think things to come out of this movie i think if we're talking about this this film's legacy in terms of specific scenes or moments you've probably got uh the coach ron washington wash describing playing first base as being very hard uh you uh you've you've probably got uh some of the scenes with um, with Chris Pratt as, as Hatterberg. and and but you definitely have how can you not be romantic about baseball? That's that's one of the things that I think is the most enduring things to come out of this movie. Yeah, and actually, now that we're talking about that again, we we almost miss in a way that it is a metaphor for Billy that he he did succeed. 
he hits it out of the park. I, 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 I understand that that is how it's, it is introduced with that intention. But then because we, we then spend some time with Billy by himself in the car, just listening to, to his daughter, and we see, oh, he, you know, he's he's just appreciating the simple things in life. He's stepping away from from this game, from from everything. We almost we're getting two endings in a way. Mm. We're told he succeeded, but we have to look beyond the story we just witnessed, and then we're also told he's already won because he's got a good life and he's got love and he's got his daughter to to bring up and all of that stuff. So it's 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 definitely a nice ending. I I don't want my the earlier comments I think I made about maybe the ending falling too flat. There, there's definitely still enough in it to make it a worthy script to talk about. It, it's not completely terrible. Well, what I what I like about it is that it's subtle. It doesn't have thousands of fans cheering and uh, which is great too. But I think there's plenty of films that have already done that. So I think maybe they were going for a slightly different approach that was a little more subtle at the end there. So yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I think there was, I mean, for one of the things that I really noticed was how fast the film went. It's like over two hours and it literally didn't feel that way at all. And again, uh, speaking about the screenwriting, it's because, you know, the scenes were very clever in the dialogue and used the the characters' personalities and difference in personalities and how they were interacting with one another as part of the charm of how everything was sort of unfolding. And just, you know, the underdog story, that's always appealing. Well, that's our episode on Moneyball. Aidan, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, probably easiest thing is uh, you can follow me on Twitter at a jackson evans and yeah uh, anything that i that i write will will be posted there uh, i write for highheatstats.com uh, and i also post baseball statistics on uh, the high heat stats twitter feed as well if that is your kind of thing and a lot of them are amusing and at times right you you like to include fun facts and things like that as, as well for yes uh, fun facts definitely uh, you can find them on my twitter page and, you know, I like advanced statistics, but I like the way they inform stories, as we talked about. And uh, mm. I mean, baseball has just such a rich, rich history. You're never short of finding something interesting uh, to write or to talk about. Very cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for coming all the way from Maine to California to record this. Thank you again for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. We look forward to seeing you again in two weeks.